Where are we going? Welcome to this exclusive podcast produced by Spirit Watch Ministries that will show where life in our darkening times is now turning and how you can avoid the detours of deception through the hope of biblical truth. The Lord Jesus in Matthew 24 warned us over two millennia ago and how urgently we need to heed Him now. Our host is Pastor Rafael Martinez, a seasoned Northwest Indiana-based minister, intercessor, and counter-cult apologist who will help you discern the journey of change we're all on as the last day of the last days now winds down. For more information, check out our Facebook page and our website at spiritwatch.org. Now. Here's Pastor Raphael. Hello. Thanks for stopping by and for downloading our program podcast entitled, Where Are We Going? I'm Raphael Martinez, a minister in the Church of God Cleveland Movement, and I'm so glad you took the time to listen in today. Uh, thanks for stopping by, as, we, as we've said. Uh, this podcast is one of the services of Spirit Watch Ministries. That's an outreach of discernment in our deceptive world that's been ongoing since 1993. And you can learn more about us at our website, spiritwatch.org, and keep up to date using our Facebook and YouTube links there on the page as well. So while you're at it, just invite all of your friends, your enemies, maybe your pastors, or, uh, your dentists, <laughs> uh, and everyone all points in between to also listen in. We're, we're always seeking new audience, and we'd appreciate your help spreading the word. Thanks again so very much for doing that. Our podcast is devoted to providing biblical perspectives on the ongoing plunge of the world into the darkness of spiritual deception as foretold by Bible prophecy and the history of fallen humanity that we see all around us. We're going to be exploring just how surreal the depths of cultism can be in the next couple of weeks as we begin to take a long and hard look at the megachurch cult called the Zenos Christian Fellowship in Columbus, Ohio. Zenos' public image is a carefully curated and scrupulously sanitized posture of radical, yet cutting-edge Christian orthodoxy. But the black light it actually emanates testifies to an aberrancy that is both unexpected, savage, and hidden in plain sight. This is a story we're dedicated to helping tell about the decades of abuse many within Zenos have discovered and experienced. This tragic development will be covered more fully in an upcoming documentary on Xenos that is currently in production that a ministry actually helped to create in the past few months. But before we can share our own commentary on the startling establishment of cultism, there's a painful bit of cautionary insight about how such a thing can be so easy to fall into. We want to share this with you today by way of an older teaching tape called Cults, the result of a problem. The speaker is a man named Chris Elkins who for several years in the mid-1970s was a deeply committed member of the Unification Church cult, founded by the infamous Reverend Sun Myung Moon. He was a lifelong churchgoer, but whose spiritual roots were surgically cut away in days as he was recruited by Unification figures who he came into contact with while in college. Engaged by their love bombing, all their, their loving attention focused upon him, as well as some incredibly intense intellectual lures that they threw out, Elkins was drawn away into unification cultism that seemed so much like the pinnacle of truth and a center of transformative spirituality that could change the world if given a chance. You see, no one goes out to find and join dangerous cults. They get involved with friendly people whose winsome appeal to mind and heart is often irresistible. And there's no shortage of such recruiters as Elkins has said in an interview. Cults are all over, he says. 
cults are an interesting phenomenon, especially at this point in time. But cults are not the problem. There was, they are the result of something deeper, something that we can't quite get our arms around. And in his sharing today, Chris Elkins helps us recognize what that X factor is, which cultists are so able to engage within us all. And we trust you'll get some sobering reflection here that we believe will help you understand how cults truly are indeed the result of a problem. For a while this evening, I want us to consider a thought about cults. Cults are one of the most misunderstood con uh, things in the American society today. There's all kinds of stories you might read, there's all kinds of information you might pick up, but for a little while I want us to talk to somebody who's actually been there, namely myself. Someone who came out of a background much like yours. I was raised in a Christian home. I went to church every single Sunday of my life. I had a very successful background. My college career was an exciting one. And yet in a seven-day period, I met and joined a cult. I want you to know why. I'm not here to teach you how to hate anybody. You're not going to go out of here wanting to tar and feather the next Mooney you meet. You're not going to hate them. You're not going to want to be rude to them. For my effort here tonight is to as well help you in your Christian response to these people too. 70% of the people who call themselves Moonies right now came out of a denominational Christian home, a mainline Protestant denominational Christian home. Seven out of ten of them left one of our churches to be where they are right now. So for the first part of uh, what we discuss, we first of all cannot point a finger at them and say, what's wrong with them? I want our attitude to be right from the beginning for most of the people who are in cults right now left us, left one of our churches. A lot of them were just like you and came from families just like yours. People who are in cults are not monsters. They're people who grew up next door to you. They're people who were in your Sunday school classes. They're people who grew up with your kids and for the grace of God, it is not your child. What is the problem? The whole premise of our discussion will be this. Cults are not the problem, but they're the result of the problem. And understanding what the problem is will help you know right now what you can do to prevent this from happening in your life. When I was a senior in college in the summer of 1973, I never dreamed I'd join a cult. I was an honor student. I was a fraternity president. I was active in college. I was happy. I was successful. Things were going pretty much my way. But like most any young person that age, I was having some thoughts about, well, where is my life going? Am I satisfied? Am I growing? What do I know? For those of you who have seen the movie Heavenly Deception, you saw Chris Elkins sitting out on the porch of a fraternity house one afternoon when a young man from the Unification Church approached him. If you'd noticed, and, and exactly the way it happened was this guy who walked up to me was not wearing a big sign that says, I'm a Mooney. A lot of us who thinking would be thinking right now, well, if I was with Chris that afternoon that he first met the Moonies, if I was with him, I wouldn't have made the same mistake. For a while this evening, I want you to feel what I felt and see what I saw and understand why I made the decisions that I made. If anyone has ever told you that a little bit of knowledge is dangerous, you're going to see a classic case. For the problem that Chris Elkins had the afternoon he was sitting out on the porch of his fraternity house when he met that first moon, he was this. I knew almost nothing about what I believed. I was raised in a Christian home, I went to Sunday school every Sunday of my life, and yet for some reason I knew almost nothing about my faith. A little bit of knowledge can be dangerous. That first young man I met was wearing a suit and carrying a Bible. 
how was I to know that he was in a cult? A lot of you think, well, if my child ever met someone in a cult, or if I ever met someone in a cult, it would be obvious. Don't know all cults. All cultists have red skin, horns, and pitchforks, or, or they've got big signs on that says, we're in cult, or they've got, uh, you know, there's somehow their appearance you think will give them away. First of all, this is usually not true. They're very deceptive. They're oftentimes impossible to pick. Cults, if I had to give you a definition here, and just a very, very short one, and a very simple one, really, cults are defined this way, counterfeit religion. If you've ever seen counterfeit money, you've probably been impressed by it. For the best counterfeit money, it's very, very hard to tell the difference between it and the real thing. I was a bank teller for a while while I was in college and trained to spot counterfeit money. And the very purpose of what I'm doing here this evening is very much what I learned while I was a bank teller. How do you spot counterfeits? As a bank teller, I was told that if you want to be able to spot a counterfeit $20 bill, that you've got to know what the picture is on the real $20 bill. If you want to spot a counterfeit $20 bill, you've got to know what the wording is on the $20 bill. You've got to know the details about the $20 bill. I was trained as a bank teller that if you want to spot the counterfeit, you have to first know the real thing. In fact, the only way to spot the counterfeit is by knowing the real thing. I never studied counterfeits as a bank teller. And a lot of people will tell me, well, you know, you can't really tell by just studying the real thing. Yes, as I used to count money very, very rapidly, every now and then I would stop and say, wait, there's something wrong with this bill. And sure enough, it would be a counterfeit bill. It just something didn't feel right. I never studied counterfeits, but I was able to spot them because I knew so much about the real thing. This is my message to you tonight to begin with. You've got to come away from this place knowing so much about the real thing that you'll never be fooled by a counterfeit. But you'd be surprised the number of us who are here playing the game. I did it for many, many years of my life. I never took my faith seriously. I never thought it would ever make that much difference in my life. I thought as long as I held the right morals and I was a pretty good guy, that that was all that mattered. My life was almost destroyed by some of those thoughts, for I did not ever grow. When I was 10 years old, I made a decision to ask Jesus Christ into my heart. And I had a real experience when I made that decision. I knew what a 10-year-old needed to know about Jesus Christ. I knew what a 10-year-old needed to know about the Bible. I knew what a 10-year-old needed to know about salvation. And that's exactly what's expected out of 10-year-olds. Do you know what the problem was in my life when I was sitting out on the porch of that fraternity house that afternoon? I was 21 years old, a college senior, an honor student, a fraternity president. Things on that side of my life were going terrific. The problem was I was still only 10 years old spiritually. I had never grown up. Spiritual growth is a very interesting process, and it's very, very much like your physical growth. Every person in this room has gone through the same processes of physical growth. The very first process of your physical growth was the day you were physically born. You were spoon-fed. For the first few weeks and first few months, someone held up your little head and poked a spoon into your mouth and spoon-fed you. But then what happened? Every person in this room learned how to feed themselves. And most adults in this room right now could pick up a little baby and spoon-feed it. You see, the cycle completed itself. First you were spoon-fed, then you learned how to feed yourself. Now you can feed others, physically. But should not the same process happen spiritually? How many of us have been Christians for years and years and years and years, and we're still being spoon-fed every Sunday? We have not even learned how to feed ourselves, much less anybody else. There's got to be a reason why 70% of the people who are Moonies right now were members of mainline Christian churches at the time they joined. 
And I think that if we discover the cause of the problem, we'll be much better able to cure it. That first young man I met looked like a Christian. Let me ask you a question. Most of you have met a Mooney at one time in your life, or maybe a Hiree Christian or someone from Divine Light Mission, or maybe you've had people come up to your door representing different organizations, different churches, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, all kinds of different groups in our society who will come and share their faith with you. Let me ask you a question. What did the last person trying to share their faith with you think of you and your God? If you're like most of us, you've slammed a, win slammed a door, rolled up a window, walked the other direction, said something rude, and a lot of us say something crude. What did that person think of you and your God after you dealt with him? We've got to realize that people who are in cults haven't quit searching. Most of them that are in cults are there oftentimes as the product of a real search. But for some reason, they never saw the answers in us. They really want to know the truth, but they didn't think we were taking it very seriously. They left one of our churches in search for love and truth, when this should be the greatest source of both of those things. It's a shame when people go from this place looking for it and that they did not find it here. When I met that first guy, I never dreamed what was getting ready to happen. It wasn't obvious. If you would have been there with me, I don't think you would have been able to tell the difference. He didn't look like he was from a cult. But let me turn this on you for just a second. Can people just look at you and tell that you're a Christian? Oh, a lot of times we think we should be able to spot people in cults by the way they dress or by the way they look. Well, the converse of that then should be true as well. You should be able to spot a Christian by the way he looks or the way he dresses. Is that true? I don't think so. How do people tell you're Christian? How can they tell you're not in a cult? Ever thought about that? As I went to that first lecture with that young man that night, most people think if they'd have been with Chris Elkins, that you would have known it was the Moonies right off. That if you'd have walked into that room with me that first night, that you'd have known who it was to begin with and you wouldn't have gone any further. I wish that was true. But let me tell you what I was met with that first night I went to a Mooney lecture. I walked into a room full of people, some of the friendliest people I'd ever met in my life. Every single one of them greeted me and told me how nice they thought it was that I was there. They made me feel at home. There was not a single person who pinned me up against a wall and said we were going to make a Mooney out of you in seven days. There was not a single one who argued with me or tried to tell me that all of my spiritual uh, learning to that point was for naught. They wanted me to be their friend, and they were a friend to me. They brought me a Coke to drink. Several people visited with me. There was nothing obvious in their manner that they were from a cult. As we talked for a little while that evening, I heard a lecture on the nature of God, two and a half hours of it. I sat there just fascinated with what they were doing. They quoted the Bible inside and out. I thought, boy, these people have to be Christian. That first guy I met that afternoon quoted the Bible to me. And I thought, well, certainly anyone who quotes the Bible to me must be Christian. Is that true? Well, let's turn it on you just a second. Do people know you're Christian just because you quote the Bible? Is that the significant factor that makes you Christian? This young man called himself a missionary who first met me. All of those people I met that night called themselves missionaries. Are all missionaries Christian? How does someone tell that you're a Christian? If it's not necessarily what you can quote, because I could take anybody out there on the street right now who doesn't know anything about Christianity and in just a little while have them quoting the Bible. 
What makes us Christian? What makes us different? Why should we be alarmed about cults? If I lined up ten Moonies in front of you right now and let you talk to them, you'd be real surprised at what you'd find. You'd find that all of them, every single one of them, you wouldn't find a one of them who drank or smoked. You would not find a one of them involved in drugs. You'd not find a one of them involved in any kind of illicit sexual behavior. Their morals, their attitudes are about as straight as they come. But does that make them Christian? Is that enough to justify their existence? Can we say, well, they're all right just because they hold those morals? I don't think so. For anyone could hold those kind of morals and not necessarily be Christian. Those kind of things are easy to counterfeit. The elements amongst us that are easy to counterfeit, you're going to find they'll counterfeit every time. Seven out of ten of those people left one of our churches. Yet when I met the Unification Church, I was so impressed with the quality of person I met, their caliber, their way of reaching out, their way of caring, their way of touching me, their morals. I thought, boy, you know, I kept pretty high morals. And yet I thought, here's a group of people who keep even higher morals than I. I was sure I had met Christians. But then again, this, just as a certain set of rules, a certain set of morals make you Christian, what's the difference between the Christians and the cults? For if we start trying to say that it's the clothes we wear or the book we carry or what we can quote or what morals we keep, I think we're going to have some problems. For anybody could keep those things and still not believe in Jesus Christ. How do people know you're Christian? Do you think it's just because of your morals? Anybody could have those morals and not necessarily be Christian. When it came right down to it for me, I came to the end of seven days of lectures. We heard discussions on the nature of God, on the fall of man, on Christology, on history, on the last days, on all kinds of subjects you might hear in a Sunday school class or, or in a seminary. I was impressed. You know, they had taken the little bit I knew about the Bible and had woven it into their fabric. You know, theology, your theology, your concept of God, your understanding of this universe is much like a puzzle. As you've attended church, as you have gone to Sunday school and different training sessions, you have learned little bits. You've gotten little pieces of the puzzle. Many, many of us have every piece to the puzzle, to our spiritual puzzle, to our theological puzzle. Yet the problem with a lot of us, the problem with me, is although I went to church every Sunday, and I'm sure every piece of my puzzle was given to me at some point in that experience, the problem was I had a pile of pieces, not a picture. The Unification Church painted a picture for me in seven days. They started with A and went all the way to Z. They showed me how all of these things should fit together, I felt like. That what I felt like is they did is they took my pieces. You ever did it, had uh, put together a jigsaw puzzle? My wife does this quite a lot. She enjoys puzzles. When she dumps out all those pieces on that table, there's not much she can tell me about her puzzle. She can't tell me that all the pieces are there as long as she's got a pile of pieces. She can't tell me she can't pick up one piece and tell me where it belongs because she doesn't have it all put together. But the moment she's got that thing completed, she knows she's got all her pieces. She can pull out one piece and say, this is where that belongs, right there. Nowhere else. That's kind of like context in the Bible. It's not enough to be able to quote scripture, because anybody could do that, but to understand the meaning, because you can lift material out of context. Anybody can do it. Just quoting is not enough. Knowing exactly the spot that quote came from and what it's really saying is important. 
I'm afraid these people took my pieces and put it in a different puzzle. I didn't have it put together. I felt like that we were in agreement. You say, well, then, well what's your beef about Unification Church then? They're, they seem to be very loving. You know, every day as I came out of one of my regular classes at the University of Arizona during this time I was meeting these people, every day they were outside of one of my classes and were going my direction. Every day I got to my fraternity house and there'd be a plate of cookies there or a cake there or a gift there with a little message attached saying, we love you, we're concerned about you, we care for you, we're praying for you. I mean, who loved me? Oh, I was going to a mainline church at the time. There was oftentimes, though, many times I would miss two or three Sundays in a row. College students do that occasionally. I missed some. How many times do you think I was ever contacted by my Sunday school class and told I was missed when I was not there? How many times do you think my Sunday school teacher ever said, called me and said, or dropped me a note even, and said, we've missed you, is there something wrong, can we help? What does any 10-year-old spiritual individual know about God? When you're 10 years old, what do you know about God? I can think one thing just rings in my mind that I was taught. God is love. Where was God in my life at that time? Here were these people who every day came by and saw me, brought me gifts, told me they were praying for me and loved me. And then here was this other group of people when I wasn't there, they obviously didn't miss me. Who loved me? Can you for a minute see why I made some of the decisions that I made? They were a product of my being naive. They were a product of my not knowing what I believed or why I believed it. It wasn't such an irrational decision. In fact, it seemed a very rational one. Now, when you get into the what is the real problem here, the problem isn't morals. The problem isn't how they do things. The problem is not their methodology. We as Christians tonight have to be concerned about one thing their theology. What do they believe about Jesus Christ? For that makes all the difference in the world. Stop and think about it. These people believe that Jesus failed. Did Jesus fail? These people believe that the sign of the cross is Satan's sign of victory. These people believe that Sun Myung Moon, a 61-year-old Korean man, is the return of Jesus Christ. They pray in his name. This very Sunday morning at 5 a.m., every Mooney in this state was up. He was praying, he or she were praying to pick a picture of Moon and his wife at the front of a room. The men were on one side, the women were on the other. They all bowed three times to that picture and pledged to die for Moon this morning. If it was necessary, happens every Sunday morning. These people believe he's really the Christ. Where can we as Christians take exception with these people? in their theology. It is a shame that I grew up in a Christian home with parents who loved me and cared about me, and yet I knew almost nothing about what I believed. Oh, I didn't realize all those things at the time I joined Unification Church. I came down to one decision. Who loves me? If God is love, I want to be where the love is because God must be there. Who loves me? We all ask that question. We've all got to make a decision. What I thought they were offering me was love. I later turned, it later turned out to be anything but love. But it looked so good. We often think that the devil is going to approach us with, us with red skin, horns, and a pitchfork. That he'll be so obvious that none of us would ever fall for his ploy or his tricks. 
That's not true. You know, I asked you a question a little while earlier that we've never answered. How does somebody know you're a Christian? When the Moonies meet you, how do they know they've met a Christian? You're not wearing a big sign that says, I'm a Christian. And just because you carry a Bible, that doesn't mean it either. They carry Bibles too. How does someone tell you're a Christian? If it's not the clothes, the book, what you can quote. You say, well, Chris, people know I'm Christian because I go to church on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights. And on Wednesday nights occasionally too, and I do a little mission activity, this kind of stuff. My neighbors know I'm Christian because I'm gone every Sunday morning. They know I must be in church. That's my witness to my neighborhood that I'm gone at certain times of the week. Or that I sit in a beautiful church building like this one. That makes me Christian. Do you think sitting in here makes you Christian? If it did, then go home and sit in your garage. It'll make you a car. Or go sit in the forest. It'll make you a bear. You're not Christian just because you're sitting in here. Well, we've come up with several reasons that people can't tell we're Christians. How in the world will someone ever be able to tell that we're Christian? What is the distinguishing factor that makes you different from people who are in cults? The answer is so simple and so clear that whether you read it in King James English or in modern English or however you might read it, there's no doubt about what this verse says. There's one way for people to tell you're Christian. It's John 13:35. It says this, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. How much did that last person who tried to share his faith with you feel loved by you? You say, well, come on, Chris. I'm not supposed to love someone who's in a cult. They're making mistakes. Look at the giant errors those people are making. I sometimes have to stop and think, why does God love me? He must look down at Chris Elkins quite a lot and say, why should I love him? Look at the giant errors he's making. My God loves me in spite of me. Who gave me the right to judge others and say who deserves my love and who doesn't? You've been loved unconditionally. God has said, I love you and he cares about you. And yet we meet these people in parking lots and we, don't, we just think we're one step above or that we should be up on a pedestal that we don't even have to deal with these people. If you realize for a minute these people are your children, these people are kids who grew up in our churches, these are people who went to school with us and somehow they never saw the love in us. How is that possible? It's possible because people oftentimes come to our churches and never get their hands shaken or to someone to say, I'm glad you're here. It happens because a lot of us go to Sunday school and we never take it very seriously. For some reason, spiritual discipline and love, people think discipline and love, they don't see that the two words are synonymous. The most loving thing you could do is become spiritually disciplined. You say, oh, but discipline's a drag. What, what, what horrible stuff. You know, when I think about discipline, I have to think about the Olympics. I have to think about those ice skaters who I'm fascinated with, who can get on that rink and go around as fast and fast as they want to go. They can go backwards, forwards, they can flip, they can turn, they can twist. They can do anything they want to do on that ice. They're totally free and they're totally unafraid. Have you ever tried to ice skate before, any of you? How many of you were able to go round and round as fast as you wanted to go? You could flip, turn, twist, do anything you wanted to the first time you tried it. If you're like me, even the tenth time you tried it, you're still clutching the rail. All you do is you kind of scoot around the outside. You're totally afraid, and the last thing you are is free. That's the way a lot of us are on the spiritual ice. We've never become 
disciplined enough to get away from the rail. We are dependent on a crutch, something to hold us up, someone else to explain it, someone else to do it. There's not a one of us tonight who don't want to be free. We all want to be unafraid, but there's only one key to getting there, discipline. For some reason, it never seemed important to me. Let me come back again to what we started talking about. Cults are not the problem. They are the result of the problem. Where is the problem? Can we point our fingers out of this place and say, well, the problem is out there? Or maybe is the problem right here? How much do you really care? I was in Unification Church for two and a half years. I used to approach people like you on street corners or at your home or in a parking lot and I would come up and I would say, Hi, my name is Chris Elkins and I'm part of an interdenominational Christian youth project here in the Hattiesburg area. We're here raising funds for Christian mission projects or we're here raising funds for all kinds of different things. Youth groups, mission work. And I'd say, would you give us a dollar or two dollars in exchange for this flower to support our interdenominational work? You say, oh, well, people don't really support that kind of thing, do they? I would hate to take a show of hands on how many people in here have given a flower, or given a dollar or two dollars to someone like that, who approached us in a parking lot or came to our door, and we didn't even really know who they were. They sounded good, and thus we gave them a dollar or two dollars. You say, oh, well, a dollar or two dollars, that doesn't make any difference. The Unification Church, the Moonies, make one million dollars every five days selling flowers, candy, and candles in parking lots. But before that figure blows you away, who gave them that one dollar or two dollars that added up to a million dollars every five days? Who did it? Who do the Moonies have to think, thank for their great success? Where have they gotten 70% of their members and nearly all of their money? Do you think atheists support a kid who says, Hi, I'm working for an interdenominational Christian youth project? Think Madeline Murray O'Hare's ever given one of those kids a dollar? I doubt it. Do you think it's the Jewish element amongst us who will support the Christ, this interdenominational Christian group as they call themselves? No, it's us, the Christians for the most part, that have supplied this. There is not a state in the United States that is not affected. I go to little towns all over this country and I never go to a place where they tell me they haven't met the Moonies or the Hare Krishna or the Divine Light Mission or the Scientologists. But a lot of times people tell me I'm the first one they've ever met from my faith. Stop and think about some of these things for a minute. Where is the problem? A lot of people will advocate, oh, well, let's get rid of the Moonies. Let's get our legislators to, to come up with a law that would be so written that we can get rid of the Moonies. Wouldn't that be a good idea? We could just legislate them right out of existence. What's going to happen the day we let our government get rid of one religious group of people? That is the first day of the day they'll get rid of all of us someday. They'll, we've given them an open door. The problem belongs to the church. The church better solve this problem for our own good, for if we force other people to solve it, it will be to our own detriment. I'll guarantee you. Two and a half years of being in Unification Church, I met people in parking lots on street corners. I asked questions. I was searching inside. 
I can remember times I was kicked by people in parking lots when they found out I was a Mooney. I've been slapped by people. Boy, that was a real witness, wasn't it? Boy, it really made me want to go to church with them that next Sunday. It really made me want to find out the truth that they had. Of course, I'm being sarcastic, for it did made me turn around and walk away from them and thank God I was not like that. Christians are known by their love. We get concerned occasionally because we can't out-debate everybody we meet. We can't out this or out that, and we certainly can't out-hate anybody. You know the most effective tool a Christian has? The only tool a Christian has that everybody, that nobody can, can outdo you on? Love. For if you have Jesus Christ in your heart, there is nobody who can outlove you. It is the greatest tool you have. And yet so few of us know how to use it. You'd be surprised what love will conquer. Did the Moonies really love me? Let me tell you the kind of love they had for me. Oh yeah, they were excited about me being there. They were great friends with me as long as I did everything they wanted me to do. When I said jump, when they said jump, I was supposed to say how high. As long as I did everything they wanted me to do, they loved me. But that's not love. Or that's cheap love. The world can love like that. God's love is unconditional. There is a difference between God's love and that kind of love. For they did not offer me God's love. They offered me a kind of love that anybody, even the devil, can offer. As long as I did what I was supposed to, then they loved me. That's not love. Now, was I brainwashed? A lot of people want to say, oh yeah, that's, that's what happened. They brainwashed you. We've got to explain somehow. Now stop and think about it for a second. Why in the world have you read in magazines and in newspapers and in other places that Moonies and other people in cults are brainwashed? Have you ever thought about why people have ever thought it was brainwashing? Was I brainwashed? What would be the easiest way out for me right now? What, what could I say that would let me off the hook and say, it's not my fault, I'm going to blame somebody else? call it brainwashing. For if I was brainwashed, I was not responsible for what I did. If I was brainwashed, then it's not my fault. It was no deficiency in me. Let me blame it on somebody else. It's a cop-out. Brainwashing is also a cop-out for one other group of people who need an explanation of why their people are joining cults. Somehow the church has got to explain why our people are joining cults. Brainwashing is the best way. People, but people will say, Chris, come on. The last one I met was glassy-eyed and spaced out. Boy, he had to be brainwashed. Does glassy-eyed, spaced out mean brainwashed? Go over to any college campus during finals week if you want to see glassy-eyed, spaced out people. I would dare say that none of those people are brainwashed, but nearly every one of them on a college campus during finals week is glassy-eyed and spaced out. Why? he's tired. If you've ever been through finals week, you know that you do all the semester's work in one week. You type papers, you read books, you, you do everything you're supposed to do over those first three or four months. You do it all in one week. You sit, sit up 18 hours a day for seven days, and by the end of that period, you are so glassy-eyed and spaced out that you look like a space cadet. But you're not brainwashed. You're just tired. 
Most people and cults get four hours of sleep a night. When I was a Mooney, I never got more than that in one night. If you saw me and I looked glassy-eyed and spaced out, it's a lot because I was tired. But I wasn't brainwashed. Nor are most of the people in cults. I just can't accept that as being reasonable. Was I controlled? Absolutely. But there is a difference. If right now any person in this room was dependent upon me for your food, your clothing, your shelter, your guidance, your day-to-day -day lifestyle, your money, everything, you had to come to me to get everything, I'd control you, and I yet I wouldn't necessarily have you brainwashed. Have you ever wondered why God has sought us to be totally dependent upon Him? Whoever controls your dependencies controls you. And I admonish you to turn the reins over to God and let Him do the controlling. But a lot of us turn over these reins to other people. For a lot of us, it's a cop-out. For a lot of us, you say, well, why do people stay in cults? I know people have been in cults for 10, 15, 20 years. Because you get in there and you just let somebody else make all your decisions. It becomes such an easy way of life. You don't have to worry about anything. You just do as you're told. There's food on the table. You're taken care of. Boy, it's easy. It's cop-out. And I know a lot of people who stay in it for, although they may disagree with the theology, it's the easiest way of life. Leaving one of these groups isn't easy. My story is so dramatic that a lot of people don't believe it's true. I left on Christmas Eve 1970, well, let me back up. Christmas Eve 1975, I was escaping. I had just discovered my parents had hired people to deprogram me, to kidnap me out of the Unification Church. I was home for Christmas, and on Christmas Eve, a friend of mine tipped me off and said, your parents are going to kidnap you tomorrow. If you do not leave, you're going to be carried off and held until you give up and won't promise not to go back. Is that a good idea? There was a law almost passed in the state of New York recently that basically stated this, that parents have inalienable rights over their children. That whether a parent is 90 years old and the child is 70, it doesn't make any difference what the age is. Parents can come in to their children's life at any time. Now a lot of us as parents think, well, man, that's a pretty good idea. It'll help keep my kids in line. The law basically, as it was structured, said this. If your child has a sudden 180-degree turnabout in his life, if he changes instantly, overnight, in a matter of a second, and you've got a fear that he's going a direction you don't want him to go, you can step in there and you have the right to pull him out of whatever he's in. Is that a good idea? Well, at first it sounds like, well, I can keep my kids out of cults. I can keep them going straight that way. But what about other people who have 180-degree changes? The famed atheist, Madeline Murray O'Hare, her son did something very recently. He renounced his atheism. He declared a faith in God. He changed overnight. If that law existed, Madeline Murray O'Hare could come get her son out of one of our churches and say, and, and, and say that law was why she could do it. I've got some friends in Texas who tell me about one in their midst who was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home and he became a Christian and his parents are considering kidnapping him. Do you see what things we open up? 
If it's right for the Christian parent to go in and nab their kids out of groups you disagree with, why couldn't the Jewish parent or the agnostic parent or the atheist parent? We've given all, parent, all parents the right to change the lives of their children at any age. It's dangerous. It may sound good on the surface. It may solve a short-term problem, but look at the long-term effect of how it might destroy us if we're not careful. When I discovered the deprogramming, I fled. I arrived back in New York City where I was living in the movement on Christmas morning, 1975. I'll never forget that morning as long as I live. I want you to sit with me that morning in LaGuardia Airport. As that morning, I had to make some decisions about my life. Number one, I had given up my mom and dad for this movement. They were now my enemies. They were literally hunting me down. If God was really in that, really in that movement, then I could justify having to give up my own family. Others of God's servants have had to do that. I couldn't expect God to ex expect any less out of me. As I sat there in that airport that morning, I had no longer had any money. I had given every bit of that to the movement and was simply living on a day-to-day -day basis. But other of God's servants had done that. I couldn't think that God would expect any less out of me if he needed me in that role. I didn't complete my education. I gave up my education to join that movement. I had given them my car. I had given them everything I ever had. Now, sit there with me for a minute and try to imagine yourself in the same position. But better than that, what do you depend on? What is your security blanket? For if it was your money, it could be gone that fast. If your security is in your education, mine was gone in an instant. If your security is in your family, as much as I wish I didn't have to say this, my family fell apart during that experience. We're together now. We have, in fact, have the best relationship we've ever had. But what do you depend on? What is your security? Let me tell you, the only thing that did not wash down the river during my experience with the Moonies, one thing did not. My relationship to Jesus Christ stood the test. When he took, when he put his hand into my life when I was ten, he never let go. Have you ever read the story of the prodigal son? In a sense, you're looking at a 1980s version of that story. Do you see how I went off and squandered everything my father ever gave me? And then two and a half years later, I came limping back with nothing. It was hard to face up to that, that I had failed so miserably. But there was an inside feeling that as I made an admission of that mistake, as I came back to my Heavenly Father, that He didn't reject me. He didn't push me aside. He didn't say, sorry, Chris, you went too far. He loved me, and He didn't let go. I had a young man stand up one time when I was speaking in Hawaii. He stood up, and he pointed a finger at me right in the middle of the service. He said, Chris, you never were saved. You never did have a real experience with Christ. You couldn't have. You denied Christ when you joined that movement. And he got up and stormed out and wouldn't even listen to me. 
And maybe some of you think the same thing. Well, Chris, you couldn't have had a real experience with Christ and have this happen later in your life. Can you think of anybody else besides me, I'm the obvious one, who's ever denied Christ after coming to know Him? By thought, word, or deed, anybody else who's ever done it. Do you need some time to think? While you're thinking, let me remind you of Peter, who denied Christ three times in a 30-minute period. My point here is that, number one, Peter did have a real experience with Christ. And there's not a soul listening to the sound of my voice who has not denied Christ by thought, word, or deed. We have all done it. We are all sinners. Our salvation is not through our merit, but through the grace of Jesus Christ. Yes, I made a mistake, but look what God has done with it. He's taken tragedy and made victory out of it. He's taken something that almost destroyed me, and He's now allowing me to speak to millions of people, trying to help you understand the importance of knowing the real thing so well you'll never be fooled by a counterfeit. Of knowing the importance of spiritual discipline so you won't have to grasp the rail forever. My experience has absolutely no value and is useless until I gave it to Jesus Christ and said, if you want to use it, then you can have it. There are so many people today who tell me, well, Chris, we live in a big world. There's nothing I can do. I'm just an individual. I can't change my world. I'm not a called minister, I'll get told, or don't ask me to get involved. I've only got a little bit of time. I've only got a little bit of money. I can't do anything. I want you to think about a story you've heard all your life, but from a new angle this time. You see, my, all I had to give my God was a mistake. That was all that was left in my life, practically, by the time that experience was over with. A mistake. Now stop and think. Look what God has done with a mistake. You're familiar with the story about a little boy who had some barley loaves and fish, I'm sure. He was standing in front of a crowd of people that was awfully hungry. Now, if you or I would have been there that day, I wonder what we would have done. If we'd have had those barley loaves and fish, if they'd have been ours to begin with, what would we have done? Most of us, I can't feed these people. I don't have enough food. And we would have simply gone away and eaten it ourselves, probably gotten behind a tree or something. Think of the impact that little boy had with his little bit of food. All those people were fed. That little boy didn't do it. Jesus Christ did. But because somebody gave their little bit. Don't tell me that you can't do anything with a little bit. That the Lord can't do anything with your little bit. He did it with barley loaves and fish. He could do it with your time, your talent, your money. You say, but Chris, if I give up those things, I don't have anything left for me. How much food did they gather up after that experience? Basket loads, if I remember right. That boy went home with far more food than he started with that day, I'll bet. The Lord is like a multiplication factor. He takes our little bit and makes something big out of it. When people tell me that the Lord is not doing anything through their lives, 
it tells me exactly how much they're giving. Sometimes I think people must feel gypped after they've heard me speak. You're not going to walk out of here knowing absolutely everything you wanted to know about the Moonies but didn't know who to ask. You say, well, Chris, why have we even considered the fact? If, if you said from the beginning that the important thing was to know the real thing, why did we even talk about the Moonies at all? For two years, I studied Latin when I was in high school. As my freshman and sophomore year in high school, that was 15 years ago. Do you know how much Latin I remember today? I hope there's no Latin teachers in here. Zero. I don't remember any of it. What a waste, you say, to have studied Latin. No. While I studied Latin, I never learned more English in my life than I did those two years I studied Latin. I learned to conjugate verbs. I learned my own sentence structure. And today, I can still do most of those things. I forgot everything I knew about Latin, but I remembered my own language. Maybe tonight, because we've talked about another language. Maybe you've learned your own a little better. Or maybe you now know what you need to learn. My ministry is one very simple thing. I just simply hold up a mirror and let you look at yourselves. I'm not here to romp on your toes. But if you know where you're at in your own spiritual growth, then you know where you need to be going. Ignorance is sometimes bliss. Knowing now, perhaps, you may be a little more inspired. I went to Sunday school. I was never inspired about it. Let me tell you a couple of experiences I had. I used to live across the street from the church. Really, you could stand in the front door of the church I attended and see my home. I grew up in the church. My mother's taught the same Sunday school class for 25 years. I learned to play the piano out of a church hymnal. That's all I can still play today, it's church hymns. I learned to play football on the church lawn. I was best friends with the pastor's kids. But I joined a cult. I went to Sunday school. You say, Chris, why didn't you know more about your faith? Weren't you in Sunday school? Yes, I was. But I used to have a Sunday school teacher who came in, and for four years I had the same man. I grew up in a real small church. From the age of 12 to the age of 16, I had the same guy come in every Sunday. And he opened up his teacher's manual, whatever page said September the 14th across the top of it, or whatever date it might have been. He looked down, and for the next 45 minutes, he never looked up again as he read word for word every single thing that it said in the teacher's manual. He even read the teaching instructions out loud to us, explained to the students they should be understanding such and such. How long did you think it took me as a 12-year-old to figure out that Sunday school wasn't important? Or at least that was the attitude I developed. Mother would say, read your Sunday school lesson on Saturday nights. I'd say, why? It's only going to get read to me tomorrow. Parents, first of all, don't blame the church that your children haven't learned what they need to know about their spiritual lives. The basis for any person's spiritual education comes first from the home. You build the foundation upon that foundation does the church then build a structure. If the structure crumbles, it's not always the fault of the structure. You've got to look at the foundation too. 
young people don't say, oh, well, it was my parents' fault that we never prayed at home or, or, or we never did this or that or the other or, or we, my church didn't teach me. You know better. You know you are now at the time you could be feeding yourselves and not dependent on someone to spoon feed the Bible to you all the time. If we just took each other's hands and tried, I think it'd make a lot of difference. If we walked out of our worship services on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings with a little different attitude, things might change. Too many of us walk out and say, why did I get out of that this Sunday? Was it really worth the hour I said in that sanctuary? You know, an attitude like that tells me something. Number one, if you can say, what did I get out of that, then it tells me you went to watch. When I go to a football game, I won't get something out of it. When I go to a movie, a play, I go to watch. How many spectators should there be in a worship service? I think there should only be one. God. He's watching you. What does someone say after they've been watched? Like an actor, when he walks off the stage, what does he say? Does he ever walk off the stage and say, what did I get out of that? No, of course not. He always asks, how did I do? How did you do? What does God think? Did you worship? Did you get involved or did you come to just be a spectator? How much did you put into it? That'll tell me exactly how much you got out of it. My point tonight in this whole subject matter is if we want to cure cults, there's one place we need to be working on it. Right here in this church. The best way to stop cults is to build strong churches. The best way to build strong churches is to have strong individuals. Where are you? Let's pray together. Father, sometimes it's hard to look in the mirror. It's kind of painful to see where I'm at and probably where I should be. But I'm really thankful that you are who you are. Someone who loves me sometimes in spite of me, who sees me make mistakes and yet loves me. Help me learn to love others. Help me be less judgmental on others. For if I was judged as severely as I judge others, I probably wouldn't have a chance. Thank you for the love of my Christian friends. I really pray that we'll learn to love each other. I, learned, I really pray that my church will be known by its love and that I too will be known by that same love. Help me grow. I know there's more. I know, I I know where I should be. Help me care, because sometimes I just really don't care. And I know that attitude needs to change. I want to be a participant, not a spectator. Help me be that. Thank you for the people in this room. Thank you that they care enough to be here. I know that there's enough people here right now in the sound of my voice to change the world. Less people oftentimes do more than we do. We've got to care as much as they. 
I just thank you for saving me, for loving me just as I am. For no one else ever loved me that way before until you. Everyone else loved me for what I could do for them. You loved me just as I was. Thank you. Lead us from this place. Direct us, guide us in our daily lives that we may be better witnesses for you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thanks for listening today as we explore just where are we going. Our prayer is that you have been encouraged and strengthened and if necessary, challenged in your daily journey through life. Jesus is coming. You can fall with the night or you can rise with the sun. The choice is yours. You can email us with questions and comments at feedback at spiritwatch.org. And if you need urgent personal spiritual help, email us at help at spiritwatch.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Please follow our podcasting at our Facebook page and our website at spiritwatch.org. This podcast is a production of Spirit Watch Ministries, taking heed that no man deceives you.